Last week we started our series on speech, and I had a lot of you uh, share with me that um, you thought that was coming right at you, um, and it, well, maybe it was, maybe God directed it there. I, I would love to have a show of hands how many of you uh, created a jar, but I won't ask for that. I'm talking about dangerous speech. I know in our house we have instituted a uh, five-for-one rule, you know, five positive for every one negative comment you make, Um, and it's harder than you might think. Um, This morning, um, hopefully it won't be as bad, and so why don't you just look at your neighbor and say, you need to pay attention because this is for you. You just just let them know, and then look at your other neighbor and let them know that they need to stay awake because it's for them also. You should pay attention. He's going to talk right to you in about, about a minute. Um, this week, we're, we're diving a little bit deeper into the subject of speech and what does it mean for us to have gracious speech. If you've got a Bible, we'll be in James 4. James is going to get at the root cause of the dangerous speech and the damaging speech that we have. So uh, go ahead and open that up if you've got a Bible or, or boot it up if you're going to follow along that way. Uh, Keep your finger there. I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 6. You're welcome to follow along. Uh, But 6, 43 through 45, Jesus gives us this teaching. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good And the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus is letting us know something that's maybe pretty basic, but he says, really, the problem isn't your mouth, it's not your speech, it's your heart. The problem you have is your heart. And it expresses itself maybe in a hundred different ways, and your mouth might get you into so much trouble, but the problem is ultimately that our hearts are selfish. And we suffer from a condition of self-centeredness. And James is going to get at this here pretty quickly. He lets us know that that self-centeredness that we have inside of us leads to conflict. Our self-centeredness leads to conflict. There just isn't another way around it. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this. It says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? James says, listen, the conflicts, the disputes, the the ugly speech, the the, the difficult problems that you have with each other, all of these things come from evil desires. That word craving there in the text is going to be the word pleasure, just a few verses down. And if you look that word up in the Greek, it's the root of the word that we have today for hedonism. Just, Just a person whose life seeks everything for their own pleasure, for their own satisfaction, and disregards everybody else. And James says, if you put a lot of those people together that are seeking their own self-interest, that have a lot of self-centeredness, and they start talking to each other, of course there's going to be conflict. The conflicts that we have with other people, the conflicts that we have with God, the conflicts that we have even inside of ourselves, are ultimately a problem of disordered affection. We, we have a love for the wrong things. We pursue things as though they will satisfy as though they are God. And if you follow along with James's uh, train of thought here, you come to verse 2, and, and you read this. It says, You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder, and you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
You don't have because you don't ask. And so what do you do? You, you start fighting with each other. Now, we've got conflict with each other. It comes from that desire. And you might start to get the picture of what James is, is, is painting there. James's church has got people who, you know, they look at their neighbors and they go, man, their tent's a little bit larger than our tent. And boy, I'd like to have a, a new tent. Or, or man, did you see the camel they parked in their driveway? Man, I'd love to have me a late model camel like that. That would be so much better than this old one-seater we've got over here. I mean, it'd be so much better to have, you know, one of those camel wagons. This would be great. And so the people in James' church, they start to fixate on all of these things, and they're starting to covet them, and they're starting to look at each other, and it's like a, it's a war comes on. And maybe you don't suffer from this, but I suspect that, that all of us do some way, shape, or form. You may not want a bigger tent or, or, or a nicer camel, but perhaps you're looking for a, a later model car or a bigger house or a boat, and, and you start to get obsessed with these things that you want, and so you start to do research, quote-unquote, and, and you become obsessed and consumed with looking up facts and reading about these things, and then all of a sudden the neighbor backs up into the driveway what it is that you've been looking for, and now it's on. And you're like, my goodness, that's not going to satisfy. I'm going to need a, a, a year later. I'm going to need something a little bit faster with a little bit more power. That's what I want. Now, I might go to my neighbor and say, man, I'm, I'm happy for you. But deep inside, there's something that tears us up. And it starts to change my relationship with him. And it starts to change my heart. And James says that's where conflicts and disputes come from. This covet, this internal conflict now becomes external, and it starts to wage war with those around me. And it doesn't have to be stuff. You know, it could be accomplishments, to which our covetous hearts might say, you know, I could have done that too. If only I had just fallen into the right place at the right time, I could have done that as well. Or it might be about friendships. We look at somebody and we go, man, everybody likes her. Man, everybody likes him. If they knew the real him, if they knew the real her, I don't think they would. And that pushes us to a darker place because then we start to wonder, what if they really knew me? What would they think about me? It starts to push us into this darker and darker place. It could be recognition to which we say, oh, they don't deserve it. He hasn't worked for it the way that, that I have. Or she's coasted in because of her looks and all of these things start to push us into this darker place and it starts to, to squeeze out into conflict that we have with other people. And sometimes it's even subconscious that we start to isolate ourselves and push others away. It's interesting, you know, we, we, we hear on the news when something tragic happens to somebody, somebody gets murdered and it, it happens by a stranger and we start to think that there's all these dark strangers running around that, that are going to, you know, take you off in the middle of the night and do something evil to you. But if you look at the statistics, 80% of all murders are committed by somebody that knew the victim. They knew them. They were friends. They were acquaintances. They were family members. And what is it that pushes somebody to that? It's this darkness in our heart that says, we're going to fight. We're going to engage in disputes and in conflicts. And James will say there in verse 2, you'll even commit murder to try to get the things that you want. Because that self-centered heart has twisted us and twisted our relationships. And all the time we're trying to get things that God might gladly give us if we only asked Him. 
Although sometimes we'll start to push God away. Let's look at verse 3 here. It says, you ask and you do not receive. Why? And James is going to speak to one reason why sometimes God answers our prayers with a no. But sometimes, he says, you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. That's that craving word again. Verse 4, adulterers, hang on to that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the Scripture says God yearns jealously for the Spirit that He has made to dwell inside of us? Ultimately, this conflict within and this conflict with others will start to eke out into a conflict with God. And you go, well, what does that look like to have conflict with God? I think it can take on several forms. One, I think sometimes we bargain with God. You know, God, if you would only give me this. God, if you would give me a, a, a newer camel or a larger truck or, or a faster boat or, or, or an, a promotion or, or whatever, if you would give me this, God, I promise I'll use it for good. You know, I'll, I'll take the orphans out for a lake day one day and I'll attend church more frequently. If you'll do that for me, if I could just catch a break, God. And we start to, to negotiate, and we get mad. And God can take the anger, but we start to, to deal with God, and we say, God, couldn't I just catch a break like all these other people catch breaks? Why are you actively working against me? We start to pray, James says, and we pray maybe even fervently and say, God, will you give me these things? Will you give me what I want? And James says, you're asking for the wrong things. You're only asking for the things that will satisfy you. You're asking for the things that you are coveting and jealously seeking. What you're really doing is asking God to give you the idols that you're pursuing. You're saying, God, will you give me the idols that I'm worshiping instead of you? And let me tell you, God will never, ever bless that. Ever. He won't. God will never bless that because the text says that he yearns jealously for our souls. Now, now that's, a, that's a pretty common theme in Scripture, although it sounds weird. You go back to Exodus 20, verse 5. God's talking about uh, idols. He says, you don't bow down to them, you don't worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, God is jealous for us. Now, it, it seems contradictory for us to talk about jealousy as being a bad thing when it's us. You know, we, we have jealousy and we say that's a sin. God is jealous for us and we say that that's good. How does this work out? Well, jealousy is, is just wanting something that is not your own. It, it's fixating on that which is not your own. It's, it's emotionally investing in the things that are not your own as though they would become yours. And, and for us, when we have jealousy towards other things, it's for other people's stuff. And it doesn't rightly belong to you and to me. It rightly belongs to them. Now, God is jealous for our spirits and for our souls, but, but at the end of the day, they do rightly belong to Him. Sin has stolen them, and we've kept ourselves from God, and God looks at us and jealously longs for what is rightfully His to come back to Him. God's jealousy covets what belongs to someone else, but it already rightly belongs to Him, for He has created all things. And God's a jealous God. And he's not going to give you the thing that you want to worship falsely. Well, what do I mean by that? How, how can I tell if that's this situation? Well, if you spend more time researching your new car than studying God's Word, perhaps that falls into this category. If you give religiously to your boat fund but never to God, that might fit into this as well. 
If you allow your relationship with others around you to be changed as you use them and turn inward, pursuing one ultimate goal of one more step up this career ladder, then I would suspect that that falls into that category as well. You want God to give you your idol? I think not. This would be like a husband asking his wife, saying, Honey, you know, I think it's time for a new girlfriend for me. Do you think you could go pick one out? That's what we do with God all the time. God, could you give me that? James reminds us that when we want to be friends with the world, we become an enemy of God. In short, when I want to succeed in the world's eyes, I've forgotten what it means to succeed in God's eyes. And James paints a pretty dark picture of all of this. He says, you've got a conflict inside. You've got a conflict with other people. You are even acting as an enemy of God. So how do we turn this around? How do we right this ship? How do we get back to this place where we can have no conflict and live at peace with God and with ourselves and with others? And I'll tell you, the answer is super simple to understand, but it is extremely hard to live out. Let's take a look here at verse 6. James is going to get at this. talks about God. He says, He gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the, gra- the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, friends, humility is the key to peace and peaceful speech. Humility. Now, we've talked about humility before, and it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's really the key to humility. And if we would take a a bit of humility, I think instead of conflict within, we would find an incredible peace as we wholeheartedly submit to God. As we wholeheartedly submit to God, we would find ourselves becoming united in submission to who God is and what He wants. And we can do that if we would just surrender our our possessions, our relationships, our desires, our agenda, our ambition, everything we have. If we could just surrender that to God and let Him be God with all of those things, that is the beginning of true spiritual humility. And again, it's so easy to understand and it's so easy to get it. It is so difficult to live that out. What's this look like practically speaking? Well, James gives us a few images to to help. Verse 7 says that we should submit to God. Submit is one of those ugly words in the English language. We don't want to submit. We're Americans. We're we're non-submitites. You know, we do not submit. That's us. And in the Greek, let me tell you, submit means submit. Okay? It means that. Submit in the Greek is used in other verses. It says, slaves, submit to your masters. And we are told as believers to submit to God and to His authority. In other words, we should let God be our master and our Lord. That's what we're called to do. We're called to resist the devil, the text says. How do we do that? We we resist his temptation. We we put it aside and we say, "I, I don't want that anymore. I'm not pursuing those things. I'm pursuing the things of God. But I'll tell you, I think a lot of our problem today is that we are way too comfortable 
and way too indulgent of temptation. We don't resist temptation. We DVR it. We bookmark it. We get its catalog. And we keep sin at arm's length because we couldn't bear the thought of being without it. Friends, if we're going to resist the devil, we've got to resist him completely. If we resist the devil and we submit to God, the text says that God will draw near to us. And when we do, we're going to find incredible satisfaction in God. We're told to wash our hands, wash our hearts, purify our minds. You know, it's not a mistake that baptism is in water. It's that cleansing, you know, that cleansing washing that comes over a believer. We're told to lament and mourn and weep. In other words, our lives should be marked with repentance. If we repent, if we truly humble ourselves for the Lord, the text is that He will exalt us. But the key, the key here is is making that choice to submit to God, put Him first, and pursue Him only. And I'll tell you, if you would do that, if we would do that wholeheartedly, honestly submit to God, we would start to see changes in our relationships. Because no longer is it a competition. Let's pick up here verse 11 through 12. James talks about our relationships with each other. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. And in case you think that might be you, it's not. Okay. Uh, So then, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, we've talked about judging not that long ago. Judging really is this idea that we would assign a value, uh, really a final value to anyone, and that's God's job. When we start to assign values to other people and we say, well, they're not worth much, or they're not going to amount to much, or, or this person isn't, isn't, you know, doesn't measure up, what we start to do is we start to play God. In James's church, they were doing this with the poor people. It says, you know, something like their, their net worth was a little bit less than other people's net worth. And so they said, all right, you're going to sit at our feet and you're going to sit over here and you're going to be in these, uh, these bad seats. But if you've got money here, you come over here, you take this preferred chair and you take this preferred seating and that's where you're going to be. The folks in James's church were saying that because your net worth is less, you're worthless. And, and that's what they're telling them. And, and James says you can't be this way because it conflicts with the law. Now, what is the law James is talking about? If you want to go home and do some homework, uh, you go back to James chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. And it's there that James will reveal that for him, the law, the royal law, is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. And if you follow that law, then you're not going to be judging, because to love your neighbor as yourself is incompatible with judging. You'll find that, 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 that law, that law of love and mercy is more powerful which is why James will say that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so if we lived with James's understanding of the law, to love our neighbor as ourself, then we would eliminate conflict with other people. But it starts with putting God and His law first. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. 
Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. James is encouraging us, instead of having conflict with God, to surrender to Him. Now, how do we get there? Well, boasting is essentially saying, I know what tomorrow holds. Or boasting maybe says, I can control tomorrow. I know how this is going to play out. I know what's going to take place. You know, I know if I go to this place at this time and do this, then it's all going to turn out for me. You know, People in James's church assumed that they could control the future or at the very least predict it. And James reminds them, and all of us in this room, myself included, who are planners, who've got good 5 and 10, 30, 40, 50-year plans, you know, all those things lined out, that only God is in control of tomorrow. There's only one person in charge of the future, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's God. And so, because God's the only one who knows tomorrow today, He's the only one who can be trusted. And so it's good for us to trust God and to submit our plans to Him. Instead of saying, I'm going to do this, we say, I'm going to surrender this to God, and perhaps in the future He will bless this endeavor what it is, is it's saying, you know, I'm going to submit everything, my plans, my ambitions, all of these things to God, not live in conflict with Him, but surrender to Him. Kurt Richardson in his commentary on James says this, the principle of doing only what one knows to be good begins with placing all of the intentions of the heart before God. And that's key, friends. If if we're going to live at peace with each other, we're going to walk in humility, it starts with walking in humility with God. And we do that through surrender and in living in submission to Him. Now, this morning, I know that some of you are here and you're like, well, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, surrender in theory works out real well. But in practice, I'm not so sure that it does. Uh, I want to share with you a testimonial from a man uh, by the name of Thomas Merton. Perhaps you've heard of him. Thomas Merton had a real interesting life, lived lots of different places, did lots of different things. Uh, he was a writer, very successful at that. And, and he lived the first half of his life for himself. And he lived the last half of his life really dedicated to God. And, and here's, here's what he says about that first half. He says, I had walked out into the world that I thought I was going to ransack and rob of all its pleasures and satisfaction, and I had done what I intended. I did it. I accomplished. He said, and now I found that it was I who was emptied and robbed and gutted. What a strange thing, in filling myself I had emptied myself. In grasping things I had lost everything. And if you read his autobiography, he'll talk about the conflicts he had inside of himself as he wrestled with who he was and the things he did. He'll talk about the conflicts he had with other people. He'll talk about the, the, the war he waged against God because he was trying this friendship with the world thing on. And he found himself living as an enemy of God. And let me tell you who won that battle. It wasn't Merton, it was God. God won, and eventually Merton lost, and he surrendered everything to God. And it was in that humility, in putting God and others first, that he found peace. He found peace in humility and surrender. And so this morning, we're going to invite our worship team to come up, and perhaps that's you. You need to surrender yourself to God. You need to live in humility and lay it down and, and, and live in submission to God and to His authority. In, in every aspect of your life, in the way you talk, in the way you do business, in the way you, you, you have family life, in all of those things, you're going to surrender that to God. And maybe you've never done that before. And if that's the case, we'll invite you to come forward. Others of you perhaps have, you know, maybe you've tried to take some things back 
and you say, today's the day that I'm going to really lay that all back there at the feet of the cross. And I'm going to put that all back there and I'm going to say, you know what, God, you take control. I surrender this to you. Others of you say, you know what, I, I need to live in, in submission to God and, and those around me. And, and maybe today's the day you'd make a commitment to, to, to the church to serve and to worship there. If those are decisions you have to make, we're going to invite you to come forward as we sing this song. Now, if that's not a decision you're going to make this morning, you're not going to share that publicly with the church, uh, please use this song and this time uh, to prepare your heart and your mind to come to the table. Maybe you've got a few things you need to just lay out there with God and say, God, I just this has been going on this week, and I want to lay that there, and I want to come to the table with a clean slate with you. Uh, please use this time uh, wisely. Um, use this time to surrender yourself to God. Why don't you stand as we sing?